Hello lovely IHHers, welcome back to a new episode of It Happened Here. If you are new here, my name is Kate Thompson Davy, and this is my baby indie podcast project, telling the stories of South African crimes mostly, although I will say I am plotting my first... Plotting sounds like I'm about to commit a crime. I am planning and researching to cover my first international crime later this month. That doesn't mean that I'm going to shift entirely to international. I think it is very important that we tell more local true crime stories, and I will continue to do so. That will continue to be the bulk of my stories. But I had an opportunity to interview someone who is an American who was involved in a cult, chatting to Radia Gleese, who is the woman who wrote the book, and I'll tell you more about her in that episode, was really interesting because she spoke about the social and political conditions around her, as well as her own internal psychology and her upbringing, and how these all led to her finding herself in a cult. Anyway, all of that is forthcoming in another episode. I'm also setting up another interview for another episode. I want to actually increase the amount of interviews that I do here, and um, I hope that you are interested in that kind of coverage. Let me know on social if you want to hear more commentary besides just mine. And sometimes that's people involved in whatever crime or affected by whatever crime I cover, and sometimes that'll be an expert who can lend insight. So, for example, I'm researching a gallery heist, and I have found a art valuer to tell me why people would steal a painting that they'll never be able to exhibit, or legally resell again because they got it through a crime. Again, I'm always open to hearing what you think, and I'm on social. You know where to find me. For today's episode, we're going back to the end of August 2019. This was a tough year to be a woman in South Africa. And I say that, you know, you can hear my voice, my hesitation in saying that, because honestly, our domestic violence... Uh, intimate partner violence, gender-based violence statistics year after year after year are horrific. So I'm not sure that we can say this was a very bad year or that was, but I remember that August. I remember the effect it had on my friends who are women, the feeling of despair. It was the same time, or at least the same month, as Uyanena Mkhochana's death, murder, and there were a bunch of other very high-profile cases, and I think that there was an atmosphere in South Africa of, I guess, some people felt resigned to the situation. Many, many people felt utterly outraged. Whatever you were feeling about these cases, there was no way to deny the stark reality of the threat to women's lives in August 2019. And then right at the very end of the month, when I guess we were all hoping we'd had as much bad news as we could take in what is supposed to be Women's Month in South Africa. So August 
30th, 2019. Another horrific crime, gender-based violence, took place. It was a regular Friday for Leandra Yechels and her mom. The two were on the highway in the early afternoon, making their way to a boxing gym in Mtenzane, in East London, for Leandre's training. 25-year-old Leandre was a local boxing champ, training for a return to glory after a couple of years out of the competitive circuit. She had been a, a karate competitor and champion growing up, and had earned her black belt and at least four national titles before getting into boxing. Her trainer and supporters called her Baby Lee, like Jacob McClalla was Baby Jake. Leandre had a degree from the University of Forte, and I've read that this was in education and in science, and I've not been able to confirm um, exactly whether she had both or one or the other, but I think it's likely that she did some sort of undergrad science qualification and the teacher training year on top of that because I know that she worked as a primary school teacher for a while. In 2019, she was back to giving her boxing career her all. She had taken a bit of a break from it, and was now planning that big return that I think I mentioned a minute ago. She had previously held the title of WBA Pan-African Junior Bantamweight Champ, which is a mouthful, and had an unbeaten professional streak. Her family were supportive and excited about this. But that's not actually the reason that her mom was driving her to training that afternoon. There was a much more sinister reason that Leandre was almost always accompanied by her mother or her father or someone who trained with her. And that's despite being fierce and strong and a literal boxing champion. And that reason was a man called Bulalani Manyakama. Bulalani was a 37-year-old tactical response policeman. And this is no shade on traffic cops, who I'm sure are highly trained. But there's something particularly terrifying about a tactical response policeman. Bulalani was Leandre's ex-boyfriend, who had been aggressively stalking and harassing her to the point that the Yechel family had to get a protective order against him. So Leandre and her mom are driving along when a Mercedes-Benz behind them starts driving very strangely. It wasn't Bulalani's car though, so at first Rita, who was driving, thought what anyone who has ever driven probably would have thought, which in my unfaltered, sweary brain, sounds something like, get off my ass, you entitled asshole. You must be very important in your mind. You better be going to deliver a baby or something. Or maybe something softer, like, geez, drive like a dursmudge. Maybe Reiter's inner monologue is more polite than mine. But as she pulls off onto the verge of the road to give way to this aggressive driver, Leandre goes stiff. It's Bolani, she says. Sure enough, as the Merc overtakes them and forces them off the road, 
His face is visible through the car windows. And Rita thinks, this is the day I knew was coming. This is the day. This episode is entitled, Love Shouldn't Hurt, The Murder of Leandre Yechels. Leandre was the daughter of Rita and Anselin Yechels. She also had a sister called Chandre. Leandre was born in 1994, and she showed an immediate aptitude for sports, excelling in karate. At 19, she was scouted by a trainer called Andile Sidonile, who spotted her in the varsity gym while she was practicing karate, and persuaded her to try her hand, or hands, I guess, at boxing. She was a little hesitant at first, and agreed to try just one fight to see how it went. A lot of the articles written about her talk about her prowess as a fighter, but also indicate that she struggled sometimes with the violence of her chosen sport, apparently feeling quite a lot of guilt when her opponents were injured. Despite this, she was a natural Probably because of her karate training, she had excellent speed in her fists and her footwork. It's not clear from any public information when she and Bolani met or started dating, but I have read that he also did karate, so it seems likely to me that that's where they met. I do know that they lived together in Cove Rock, although I can't tell you for how long or when things started to turn ugly. But they did turn ugly, and multiple people reported seeing how scared she was around him. Andile, the trainer, would later be quoted in the news, saying that Leandre would visibly shake in his company, and that they all knew something wasn't right even before Leandre confessed to him that Bulalani was both physically and sexually assaulting her. It's funny, in a very non-funny sense, how people's recollections of someone and what kind of threat they pose is so different in the newspaper after the fact. So you've got Andile saying he saw her shaking, he saw her scared of him, but you also have other people saying that you know, as someone who practiced karate, they didn't see Bulalani as someone who was out of control. So one of the quotes I've seen from a friend was that people who participate in karate are disciplined people. And, quote, the man didn't appear as a person who was jealous at all, end quote. But he was. He was a violent person to her within their relationship. And when she was brave enough to try extricate herself from that awful situation, he responded with violence. I think it's quite important to address this because this is a common misunderstanding about uh, the abusers in abusive relationships. The idea that they lose control. Actually, the loss, what appears to be the loss of control, is part of a controlling system that they put in place to keep the victim in a state of uncertainty and panic. 
There's a meme that's done the rounds. I'm sure you've seen it. I think it's uh, from a Tumblr post and I couldn't find the original. But it says something like, you know that these men aren't losing control because they never lose control with another strong man or someone who is not the victim. When I was searching for that meme, I came across a tweet from someone I follow anyway, who I think you should follow, um, on Twitter. Her name is Dr. Jessica Taylor, and she's a psychologist, forensic psychologist, uh, and feminist author. And her tweet about this, which I think really just makes the point, is violent abuse of men don't lose control. They remain in complete control. They know exactly what they are doing to women. There is no loss of control. The violence is their control tactic. It's strategic, planned, and careful control. She calls it the opposite of losing control. So when people who know Bulalani say he didn't seem like an undisciplined person, that is an accurate description of who he was. He was violent when they were in a relationship, and when she took herself out of that situation, the violence and the stalking and the fear did not dissipate. It escalated. So the Yechel's family decided that the best thing to do was to seek a protective order against him, something that would compel him to stay away from Leandre. Sadly, that wasn't as easy as it should have been. Rita, her mum, would say that they had been really poorly received and treated by the police. And Rita had spoken about being handed from police officer to police officer, and then eventually sitting down with an unnamed woman officer, because typically the police hand over so-called women's issues to women officers. I know that this policy has a, let's call it, decent core. The idea is that if you need to describe sexual assault, for example, you may feel more comfortable doing so to a woman officer. But where that falls down is in a case like this, where you get handed to essentially whatever woman is around. And that is not okay, especially if that person is not trained for this. Now, I don't know who this officer was. I don't have her name. I haven't seen it written anywhere and Rita doesn't give any more information, but she does say that she had no mercy or sympathy for their situation. So I can only imagine that either this woman wasn't trained in how to deal with domestic violence, or that she was simply ignoring her training because of, I don't know, some perceived fraternity with this police officer that they were trying to get the protection order against. One of the things that the police officer said to them, to Rita and Leandre, was that Bulalani would have to come sign for the protection order, rather than them serving it on him. Now, I mean, wow, imagine the short-sightedness and belligerent naivety required to think that this dangerous, difficult, entitled, abusive man was going to comply with that request. Oh, sure, yeah, I'll just pop around to the office and sign this protective order against me. One of the reasons that for this was apparently to spare him the embarrassment 
of being served with the order at his workplace. His embarrassment, apparently, trumped the safety of a woman. The mind boggles. Despite this absolutely appalling treatment from the police, it seems that they were able to get a protective order. One of the things that they had asked for was that his police-issued firearm be taken away because they believed that he posed a direct threat to Leandre's life. It doesn't seem that this ever happened, and we've never been given an explanation for why that is. But as a result, he was armed when, in a higher car, a higher Mercedes, he drove up behind them and forced them off the road that Friday afternoon on the way to training. I know this stretch of the road quite well, actually. Um, I think I've mentioned before that I grew up in East London, and I know that Friday afternoon traffic there can be quite bad. So I can imagine Rita's panic when this aggressive driver is acting the way he is. But despite that, she manages to make a U-turn through the heavy traffic to try get away from this man who they've now just realized is Bulalani. I have seen it reported that he had pulled them over under the guise of being a cop on the side of the road. That is not true in Rita's Later explanation, um, when she's directly interviewed, she talks about trying to take these evasive maneuvers. But that is when he started shooting. He struck the car, and then he struck Rita, while she was driving. Rita finally pulled the car off the road, knowing that she was losing blood and starting to lose control, and very possibly soon, consciousness. She says that she knew she was putting other drivers in danger if she carried on, which is just the most awful decision I can imagine someone having to take. Essentially, she's having to choose between getting as far away from this vehicle as possible and her daughter and herself to safety and the safety of those around her. I mean, of course, losing blood as she would have been and in a lot of pain, she would have been putting herself and her daughter at risk anyway, if she continued to drive, but it's still, it feels like a very weighty and no good options choice to be making in that situation. She pulls over and Leandra makes the decision to get out of the car. Bulalani has followed them on that U-turn and caught up to them. And so she decides to get out of the car to go speak to him. Bulalani does not wait for her to get close enough to speak to him. Instead, he picks up the gun, aims it at her, and shoots repeatedly, striking and killing her on the spot while her mother watches from the car. Bulalani climbs back into the rented murk and heads off in the other direction, leaving Leandre dead on the ground and Rita bleeding out. I don't have certainty on who called the cops. I know that it was a very busy section of road and that there were lots of people uh, who were witnesses to the event in their own cars. Very soon after the incident, the paramedics and police are on site and Rita is taken to a local hospital to be treated for her wounds and an alert goes out 
looking for this rented Mercedes and Bulalani, who is now speeding off towards Gunke, or King Williamstown. We have no witnesses or evidential material to tell us about Bulalani's state of mind on the day or post-shooting. What we do know is that he gets through a ping uh, and takes the off-ramp towards Pedi. And it's on that road, heading into Pedi, that Bulalani, at high speed, is involved in a head-on collision. We, again, do not know if that was intentional or not, but he collides with a passenger vehicle with three people in it two of whom are killed in that accident and one severely wounded. And Bulalani himself survives that and is taken to hospital, but in just a few days succumbs to what is described in the news media as massive head injuries. I don't believe that he ever woke up from that accident. So we know that he was technically arrested and under police supervision in that hospital. We do not know what he had to say for himself, if anything. And because of this decision to drive recklessly or perhaps take his life through an intentional car accident, Bulalani never faces any type of justice for the violence that he perpetrated against Leandre in their relationship or on the side of the road that day when he took her life and shot her mother. The victims of the car that he crashed into were identified as a clinic nurse, Aluta Oloto, and Hamburg librarian, Siasanga Diamani. Both of them were 29 years old. In the reporting that came out immediately after the shooting and the car accident, when we were still sort of trying to make sense of the story and he hadn't yet succumbed to his injuries, there is a... A police spokesperson who is quoted as saying that the motive of the shooting appears to be a, quote, domestic dispute between the couple, end quote. And that, I mean, you can imagine, guys, how much that pisses me off. A domestic dispute between the couple is an argument. It is not someone taking the premeditated decision to hire an unknown car and stalk the person that they are um, abusing and harassing on their route to what is essentially her workplace and shoot blindly at that car and ultimately at the victim and her mother, killing one of them, injuring the other. That is not a domestic dispute between the couple. That kind of language really minimizes the actions of abusers and it leaves us going, how could we have known? How could we prevent this? Which, in this case, has a very clear answer. We did know. The police were informed of his behavior, of someone who they knew where he was. They hired him, for God's sake. They knew where to find his office. They had his information on file. They could have served that order. They could have taken away his um, weapon. And that is one way in which we prevent this. We ask women why they don't leave their abusive partners. But Leandre did. And we ask people why they don't report their abusers to the authorities. 
and Leandre did. And still, she was killed by this man who everyone in her life and in his workplace at least, possibly his extended social life, knew that he was a direct and clear threat to her. And so that is how we ended off Women's Month of 2019. I want to end off with a quote from an obituary that was published in the Sowetan, uh, written by Kulile Radu, who is from Boxing South Africa. It's quite a long quote, but bear with me because I think it's lovely. It does focus quite a lot on her boxing prowess and not, well, at least that's only one part of who she was, but I think it really does a good job of eulogizing her. So, quote, The Ballad of Baby Lee is an unforgettable story of a child prodigy who arrived on boxing like a breath of fresh air. She set the scene on fire and catapulted existing performance levels to dizzy heights. A baby-faced assassin who slayed every opponent on sight. A sprightly young girl, blessed with a ballerina figure and tea and tea in her fists. She loomed large in boxing circles, heir apparent to the great Noni Tenge. She would blossom into a dominant figure in women's boxing circles at home and abroad. She was a poster girl for women in sport. In the stultifying cauldron of professional boxing, the Yechel's family love and support for Baby Lee was just amazing. Both parents were always with her at the gymnasium. They would always accompany her to all the boxing tournaments. This abiding love and care was essentially the wind beneath her wings. She was a pioneer. Hers was a heroic and titanic life. May her soul rest in everlasting peace. End quote. In that 31-day month of 2019, there are at least 28 women killed that we know of. These are the ones that made headlines, and it came from a list uh, put together by a woman called, uh, where is it now, Lacia Guess. Some of those names you already know, people like Uyanene and Jessie Hess, who I haven't done an episode on yet, but we'll get to. And some of those names are still unknown to us. Even in the news reporting about them, they'll say something like an 84-year-old granny without identifying that person. And there are, I don't know, hundreds, thousands more that we don't know about. And very obviously, it's not just in Women's Month or 2019. This is an ongoing problem. This is a worldwide problem. But wow, is it a South African problem. Without a trial to tell you about, all I can end off with is that hundreds of people packed into the East London City Hall in early, or, or mid-September rather, to say goodbye to Leandra Yechels, just 25 years old, when her life was ended by a known abuser. It can feel like there's nothing that you and I can do about this on a national scale. But I think that we can do better in our own individual lives, in our own immediate social circles. I think that we can do better in raising men who 
know how to express their emotions in a healthy way rather than shaming young boys for having emotions. And I think that we can do better when we see something that makes us uncomfortable between a couple that we know or we have that seed of doubt when talking to someone who might be a victim of domestic violence. It feels a little hollow, I know, to end like that, but it's the only thing that I can think so that I don't actually drown in despair. If you are a victim of domestic abuse, please find someone that you can confide in. I'm going to put a bunch of links to whatever resources I can in the show notes today. I don't have an answer for people who are living in fear within their homes, within their relationships. I only have empathy and sympathy and hope that you are able to get out of that situation. You do not deserve to be abused emotionally or physically or financially by someone who claims to love you. That is not love. You don't owe that person anything. Please check out the links for help and share them with anyone that you think might need to see them. I'm Kate Thompson-Davey, and this is It Happened Here. Thank you.